Will you all pray with me this morning? Father God, we thank you so much that you are risen. We thank you so much that you have overcome. Lord, forever you are glorified and lifted high. And God, we thank you so much for the chance to come here this morning and proclaim that, Father. Lord God, we pray that this would be a time where we would continue our worship, Lord, where you would speak to our hearts and our minds, God, that you would help me not to utter a single thing that's not from you. And Father, help us to walk out of here changed people, God. Help us to walk out of here closer to the people you created us to be. And Lord, right now, I pray that you would fill this place with your awesome presence, Lord, in a tangible, powerful way, God. Continue to fill this place. And Father, we pray all these things in your son's holy name. Amen. This year at Tallowood, so far and for the rest of this year, we've been be looking at what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And we've defined a disciple as someone who follows Jesus, who learns from him, who lives like him and leads others to do the same. But I wonder, how well do we really know Jesus? Because the thing is, we can't follow Jesus. We can't learn from him. We can't live like him and ultimately lead others to do the same unless we understand who he is and unless we understand who it is that he came to be. Now, history is filled with people that spent much of their lives preaching a Jesus that only existed in their interpretation of the gospel. Or, and it's filled with people that went to great lengths to advance the cause of their Christ rather than the true Christ, to worship a God made in their image rather than the one who made us in his. But why is that? I think it's because the first impulse of our fallen natures is often to look at the world around us and see how it can benefit us, to look at everything from a selfish perspective. By itself, that's not necessarily always a bad thing, but where it becomes a problem is when we can't move past that, where we can't move past looking at ourselves to see what else it is that God is doing around us, to see what's really going on. And it's why Adam and Eve ate the fruit when they were told that it can make them like God without ever really giving it a second thought. It's why the Israelites throughout so much of their history spent time looking at other nations and seeing how they appeared to be blessed by worshiping false gods and then sought to do it through the same themselves. And in the passage we're gonna be looking at today, it's why the people during the time of Christ had so much trouble accepting who he truly was, who he truly came to be. So if y'all will stand with me in reverence for God's word as we read Matthew 27, verses 33 through 44. It begins, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You be seated. 
Now, I know this may seem like a strange passage to be reading this far removed from Easter, but if you're like me, typically when you read these words, you spend most of your attention kind of focused on the salvation that was brought through them, the salvation that Jesus won for us, delivered for us through his death and ultimately his resurrection. And while that's fundamental, absolutely fundamental to understanding what's going on here, I don't think it's all this passage has to teach us. And so this morning, I'd like for us to approach it from a slightly different perspective. Instead of looking at it from the perspective of the resurrection, let's try and put ourselves in the shoes of those crowds that were walking by the cross on that day, the people that were hurling insults, the chief priests that were mocking him. Let's try and see it from their perspective. And I think when, when we do, we might see that the sin they committed long ago is one that we continue to commit today. Now, in these verses, we see the crowds at the foot of the cross taunting Jesus while he died for their sins. But how did it get to that point? I mean, how in four or five days' time did they go from shouting Hosanna as he walked through the gates of Jerusalem to shouting crucify him as they stood at the foot of the cross? As we better understand the answer to that question, we'll come to see that, as we said, their mistake was at its core something that's not unique to them some 2,000 years ago. It's something we still struggle with, and the consequences are just as dire for us. Now, the crowds of the cross hated Jesus. That, that much seems clear. However, the reason for their ire is a good bit more complicated. In short, it's because they wanted him to be something that he wasn't. And they couldn't fully understand the reason, and we can't fully understand the reason for their shouts of the cross until we understand the reason for their shouts four days earlier when he was entering the gates of Jerusalem. Now, the crowds of the cross, more than anything else, wanted an earthly Messiah. They wanted someone who would restore them to their formal glory, someone who would restore the world order to the way they thought it should be. You know, topple the Roman Empire, set them up as, you know, the world power again. It had been about 600 years since they'd been sent into exile by Babylon, and over those six centuries, they had never really regained that level of autonomy again. I mean, they had times where it seemed like they were getting close, times where it seemed like they may finally be free, but it never lasted. And so can you imagine what that must have been like? To go to the synagogues on the Sabbath and hear stories about David and Solomon, hear stories about their wealth and their glory and how they, were, how they ruled the world, and then leave to go out on the streets and see Roman soldiers walking on the very same roads that they once ruled. Their lives were a constant reminder of the fact that Israel's glory days had come and gone and they were left behind. However, they weren't a people without hope. They knew that one day the Messiah would come. They knew that one day God would send his chosen one to set things right, to reestablish his kingdom on earth. So given that, can you begin to understand how they might have been confused when Jesus, this man that they had hoped would be that Messiah, came preaching a message of peace and love rather than, conquer, rather than conquering a dominion. Can you understand how they might have been a little angered when he talked about how God's kingdom was going to include the Gentiles, the very same people that had been ruling over them for the last several centuries? And can you understand how they would feel so betrayed when the man that they placed all their hopes and dreams upon was hanging from a cross in front of them like a common criminal between two common criminals, nailed in place by the very government that they thought he had come to overthrow. For three years, Jesus had been preaching the inauguration of God's kingdom. 
For three years, he had been performing miracles and teaching in, in ways that left, absolutely, left people absolutely amazed. And for three years, many in Israel had begun to foster the hope, even if it was nothing more than a whisper in their hearts, that maybe, just maybe, this was him. This was the one the prophets had talked about. This was the one they had been waiting for, the Messiah. So when they looked up at Jesus, beaten, bloodied, and dying on that cross, they didn't see a man, but they saw the embodiment of their hopes and their expectations for a better life. And they knew that when he died, he was taking their dreams with him. So if they had so much riding on Jesus, how did they, why did they turn on him? The reason is that the, cro- the crowds of the cross that afternoon long ago couldn't get past their own ideas about who he should be to realize who Jesus really was. As a result, they missed the Messiah they'd been waiting for. And I wonder, do we make the same mistake in our lives today? Growing up, I read this passage, you know, at least once a year, you know, around Easter time, and I kept reading it, and the one question I couldn't get past was, you know, how did they miss it? How could they be so foolish as to have their Messiah there in front of them, see all that he did, and still not believe? It wasn't until a few years ago that I came to realize my own tendency to make the same mistake. And I mean, that doesn't mean that I'm going to walk around shouting crucify him on the streets or that I'm going to go around, you know, feeling so betrayed by Jesus. But at the same time, I can, begin, I can, I can become so focused on who I want Jesus to be that I forget who it is that he truly came to be. God became man for the purpose of repairing the relationship that we broke through our sins. He didn't come to give us earthly glory, but heavenly glory. He didn't come to grant us power over our enemies, but to teach us how to love our enemies. In short, Christ came to be the Messiah that we need, even if that's not always the Messiah that we want. And it's vital that we realize that the tendency to make God in our own image isn't something restricted to those crowds so long ago. It's not something that, it's a tendency that we can still have. It's still so much a part of our fallen natures that even now we can still fall into that trap. And the reason is simple. As long as we're trying to make God, and the thing is, the consequences for us are just as severe now as they were at that cross then. And the reason is simple. As long as we're trying to make God who we want him to be, God can't make us who he wants us to be. And we make this mistake, for example, when we say that things the Bible calls us sin are permissible. And there's any number of sins that fit this description, any number of things that go on in our daily lives, any number of issues, like current topical issues. For, for example, one issue that's been in the news a lot lately has been the issue of homosexuality. And that's something the Bible is very clear on. But at the same time, the Bible is equally clear on that all sexual sin is wrong. Any, any form of that intimacy outside husband and wife is equally sinful. And the Bible is absolutely clear on it, but is that how our culture sees it? And the problem, the true problem comes when, is that how we see it in our churches? We also make this mistake when we emphasize one part of God's nature and ignore other parts we aren't, maybe aren't so comfortable with. For example, I mean, most of us are very comfortable with God's love, with God's hope, with, all, with that and his mercy. But how about his righteous judgment and his discipline? Either we accept all of God or none of God. He hasn't left us with another choice and he never intended to. 
And when we try and pick and choose which aspects of his nature most appeal to us, which aspects of his character most fit the kind of God that we want to worship, we make the same mistake as the crowds 2,000 years ago, the same mistake as the crowds in this passage. And the thing is, we don't know who among those who mocked Jesus at the cross ever really came to see the truth about him. We can hope and we can pray that they did as so many others did. I mean, they weren't alone in making that mistake. The disciples misunderstood it, but they would come to see. So many in the early church misunderstood who Jesus was during his life, but they came to see it eventually and were able to put that aside to accept who he truly was. However, the thing is, those who couldn't, they would never come to know the kind of relationship that he longed for, the kind of relationship that he came to give. And we face the same choice in our walk with the Lord today. Christ is not always gonna be the kind of Messiah that he won. He's not always gonna be the kind of savior that we want. But he's always the savior that we need. And he's left it to us to decide whether or not we'll accept him for who he is. So I ask you today, who's your Messiah this morning? Perhaps there are some here who have never accepted Christ's offer of salvation. If that describes you, then I wanna encourage you not to leave here today until you've made that choice. In just a few moments, we're gonna have a chance for you to come down front and myself and some of our other ministers here will be there to pray with you, be there to show you that just as Jesus was more than willing to welcome those who passed by taunting him that day into a personal relationship with him, he is just as willing to welcome you into that kind of relationship today. Our pastor often says that becoming a Christian isn't so much welcoming Christ into your life as it is him welcoming you into his. And in just a few moments, we'll have, that chance, we'll have a chance for you to make that choice. And perhaps there are some here who have accepted Christ, but like the crowds during his ministry have had a difficult time, you know, accepting who he was and have tried to make him into something, tried to make him into the Messiah that they want him to be. This is a mistake that all of us are liable to make at some point in time and it's really done on purpose. And that's why it can be so dangerous because we don't do it, because we don't mean to do it. We don't, it's hard to recognize it in our lives. There are a couple of things we can do to help guard against falling into that trap though. And that's kind of what I want to leave y'all with today. The first thing is to be very intentional about spending time in God's word on a consistent basis. Not just on Sunday mornings when you come to church or when you're in Sunday school or maybe even on Wednesday nights, but every day be intentional about spending time in his word. The Bible is the greatest revelation of who God is that we'll ever have this side of heaven. And he's given it to us and it's the best way to come to understand who our Lord truly is. The second thing is to spend time in prayer and to take comfort in the fact that nobody wants you to understand God. Nobody wants you to know who he truly is more than God. Our Lord wants to know you more than you ever could want to know him. And he stands ready through prayer, through intercession, and through reading the scriptures to help you come to know him better and to enter into that kind of relationship. Now, those two recommendations are by no means an exhaustive list of what it means to follow Christ, but they can, follow, they can provide a strong foundation for understanding who God is and consequently also help us to keep from trying to fashion God into our own image, to try and fashion, to try and pigeonhole Christ in the kind of Messiah that we want rather than accepting the kind of savior that he came to be. Now, the crowds by the cross, could never, they couldn't get past their own ideas of who Jesus should have been and they missed out on so much as a result. They were more than willing to be disciples 
of the Jesus that came walking through those gates, riding, or that came riding on, on a donkey through the gates that Saturday morning or that Sunday morning. He, they were more than willing to be a disciple of him. But when they walked by and saw Jesus, that same man up on the cross, they weren't willing to be his disciple. And the thing is, they weren't willing to be the, they weren't willing to be his, they weren't willing to accept that he was the Messiah that they needed because he wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. And I wonder, can the same be said of us today? Will you all pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for who you are, God. We thank you so much for who you came to be. We thank you, God, for being the Messiah that we need, God, even if it's not always the Messiah that we want. And Father, on those days, at those moments where the temptation arises to try and fit you, God, into our image or fit you into the kind of creator that we want to serve, God, the kind of creator that really ends up serving us, God, I pray that when those times come that you would help us to remember your word, God, you'd help us to remember who you are and our need for you, God, that we would remember that the Messiah we need should be the Messiah that we want and help us to overcome those moments of weakness, Father, to just embrace who you are and who you made us to be as a result. And Lord, now as, as we have a chance to come down, Lord, to accept you, Father, as our personal Lord and Savior, or perhaps to make another decision to join this church, God, I pray that you would fill this place with your presence once again. Speak to each of us, Father, to help us know your will for our lives. We pray all these things in your son's holy name. Amen.